Welcome to the Shambhala Publications podcast. This episode is the fourth of five in a series on the 8th century classic work of Buddhism, Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara, or The Way of the Bodhisattva. The presenter is Wilston Fletcher of the Padmakara Translation Group, who is an extraordinary guide to this work. Along with Helena Blankleader, he has translated numerous classics of Tibetan Buddhism. In this fourth talk, Wilston discusses the chapters related to how to intensify bodhicitta. The focus here are the chapters Diligence, or Heroic Perseverance, Meditative Concentration, and the Wisdom chapter, where he presents emptiness as understood in the Madhyamaka tradition. We hope you find this to be a useful tool to deepen your own commitment to the path of the Bodhisattva in whatever form that might be. Please also visit our site at Shambhala.com for a wealth of resources on the way of the Bodhisattva, including videos of these talks. So, um, good morning, everybody. Um, <clears throat> for those who have just uh, joined us, I just would like to say that we've been um, uh, studying the text of Shantideva, the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhicharyavatara. And in the last, um, what we've been doing, we've sort of broken down the text into three sections according to the, the traditional way of commentary. <clears throat> the first section was about how to um, um, generate a kind of enthusiasm and an understanding for bodhicitta, which is discussed in the first three chapters of this book. And then um, once the um, mind of awakening or bodhicitta has been engendered in one's mind, um, Shantideva then uh, talks about the importance of not letting it degenerate. Uh, not losing it <clears throat> once it has been once it has arisen, given that uh, the mind of enlightenment, the awakening mind or bodhicitta, is itself a fragile thing and uh, can be easily lost if we don't if we don't take steps to protect it. Uh, now we're moving on to um, the third section, which is how to um, intensify this. Uh, um, that's bodhicitta. <clears throat> this uh, desire uh, and, in fact, decision to attain enlightenment for the sake of others in order to place people in the state of perfect and definitive happiness of enlightenment, uh, one needs to have um, one needs to have attained that level oneself. So. Uh, the Bodhisattva aims to um, accomplish Buddhahood in order to enable him or her to place beings in the level of enlightenment as well. <clears throat> and I said right at the beginning that this text was um, originally a kind of uh, private memorandum that apparently Shantideva composed for his own sake, uh, to deepen his own understanding of the of the path, and uh, due to a, a rather bizarre set of circumstances, he actually ended up reciting it to the monks of Nalanda, the great uh, monastic university in India. <clears throat> so, um, this third section uh, consists of three chapters, as I said. The first one is the chapter on diligence, 
or sometimes we could translate it as heroic perseverance, perseverance anyway. And then uh, there is a chapter on meditative concentration, followed by the so-called wisdom chapter, where Shantideva talks about the doctrine of emptiness as it is presented in the, according to the Madhyamaka tradition. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yesterday we finished um, discussing uh, the, the question of patience uh, in the patience chapter. That is to say, the uh, importance of learning how to uh, deal with anger, learning how to deal with enemies and hostile forces, obstacles of every kind. And uh, just to uh, resume, Shantideva says that actually the great enemy uh, of, of, one's, of the entire path is the defilement of anger, which uh, can destroy all the benefit and all the qualities that are gained uh, on the Bodhisattva path in an instant. And so it is extremely important to know how to prevent anger from arising. And therefore, uh, it's important to know where anger comes from. And he said, and you'll remember, he said in brief that it comes from being unhappy, from discontent. And so <clears throat> the question then is, is, how can I preserve my happiness or my contentment even in the face of, uh, you know, of conflict, of hostile forces, people who attack me, uh, sufferings of every kind, and so on. And he lays out in this chapter uh, various ways of reflecting in order to kind of diffuse um, situations of conflict with uh, enemies. Um, <clears throat> we didn't have time to go into that chapter in great detail, but in essence, that's, what, that's what's being said in that chapter. So now we move on to um, heroic perseverance uh, or diligence. Um, in the second version of this translation, we, we use the word diligence because it is actually uh, the translation of the Tibetan term, sundru, whereas in the earlier version, heroic perseverance was actually a translation of the Sanskrit word virya. They come down to the same thing because as Chantideva um, defines diligence in the second stanza of, of chapter 7, he says it is, uh, diligence is a joy in virtuous ways. It means um, the kind of enthusiasm, interest that one has in the Dharma, that one might have in the Dharma. Um, a kind of pleasure in doing good and helping others in practicing the path. And where there is joy, where there is enthusiasm, there will be diligence. People are naturally inclined to, uh, to do what they like, basically, what pleases them. So that's, that was um, Shantideva's definition. And then he talks about how to acquire diligence, and in so doing, he talks about what actually stops it from arising, what, what are the obstacles for diligence. And he defines them as three. He says there is laziness, an inclination to unwholesomeness, 
and a sense of self-contempt or defeatism. Um, these are the obstacles to diligence, the feeling that one is, you know, doesn't have the ability, a sort of interest in, uh, in behavior which is, uh, will sooner or later produce suffering, what we would call non-virtue, and uh, laziness, sort of indolence. Um, <clears throat> actually, I've rather, uh, I've rather um, uh, confused the issue here. What he, what he says is the, um, uh, the obstacle to diligence is laziness, and laziness is to be divided into an inclination for non-virtue, a sense of defeatism, a taste for idle pleasure and so on. So actually, uh, laziness, it's quite interesting to see how uh, in the commentarial tradition, as Shantideva says, what laziness is. And actually, um, it's connected with another uh, Tibetan term called um, dunzi, which is... Uh, um, dunzi is a kind of um, desire to be busy, to die, you know, you can't sort of sit still. It's um, a craving to be entertained all the time. You know, you when people think you, uh, there's a very there's a very nice um, uh, YouTube teaching of Pema Chodron talking about Dunzi, and she you know she mentions you know when you 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 get on the plane and you suddenly realise you don't have a, a novel to read, you don't have anything to do, and you kind of panic because. What am I going to do, you know? All you have to do is sit there. You can, there's lots of things that you, you, know, you could actually meditate. But the, uh, you know, one's is constantly occupied in trying to, um, you know, find things to take up your attention, to distract yourself. And actually this, uh, this laziness, this, this desire to, uh, you know, you, you, you will find, I'm sure, in your own experience, when you want, when you want, you feel that you ought to do your practice, you know, some sitting practice, and uh, you kind of arrange things. But uh, as the moment of the session gets closer, you, find, you think of all sorts of things to do rather than actually sit down on the cushion. You know, you, can, you, know you, have to, you want to make a coffee or you want to sort of feed the dog or, you know, all sorts of things. And, and slowly the, the time for a practice kind of gets eaten away. That's... That's laziness. You can be very busy in being lazy. So, um, an inclination to uh, indolence, an inclination to sleep, an inclination to, you know, laze around, an inclination to, to non-virtuous things, and this sort of weak-heartedness, a kind of defeatism, a sort of lack of self-worth. So, uh, Shantideva then sort of addresses the problem of indolence, laziness. And he says, actually, the way to deal with this is to generate a sense of urgency. That uh, you don't have a great deal of time and uh, death will soon be here. You know, there are lots of... Uh, very kind of um, 
eloquent images that you find in the teachings. You know, like there's this one of, uh, uh, you know, you, the, the idea that you're, in, you're sort of sitting on the, the front porch of your house in the sun and the mountains are far away in the west. And then as the sun goes to the west, the shadow of the mountains creeps closer and closer very slowly. And then you suddenly realize that the shadow of the mountain is actually there on your porch and you haven't done anything. Uh, so one's whole life can be taken up in, you know, planning to practice or um, thinking how good it would be if I were, you know, a good meditator and so on. And so Shantideva says, um, snared by the trapper of defiled emotion, enmeshed and taken in the toils of birth, again you've strayed into the maw of death. What is it? Have you still not understood? You've strayed into the maw of death, the mouth of death. By being born, you are fully qualified to die. You can die uh, as soon as you are born, uh, and it can be any time afterwards, but all you need to, in order to die, all you need to have is to be born. And he says, don't you see how one by one death has come for all your kind? And yet you slumber on so soundly like a buffalo beside its butcher. You know, like the, the cows outside the slaughterhouse. Or they don't realize what's waiting for them. All, all they do is sit in the, you know, they lie in the sun and they're sitting next to the man who's actually going to kill them. All the, fly, all the paths of flight are blocked. The Lord of Death now has you in his sights. How can you take pleasure in your food? How can you delight to rest and sleep? I find that a very uh, kind of frightening uh, image, that the Lord of Death is, you know, it's like somebody who... The, what Chantadeva is doing is trying to make you feel uneasy. You know, like... Uh, somebody who's being tracked by a serial killer and the serial killer is, you know, watching them, trailing them, seeing, looking at them through the sights of his rifle and so on and so forth. You know, I sometimes say to, uh, to people that the plane that is going to crash on this place in half an hour has already taken off, you know. When you step out of here on your way home, you might be run over by a car. Maybe the, the, they've already set off on their way here to kill you. It could happen at any time. So, um, as Shantideva says, how can you delight to rest and sleep? So if you really take this on board, this, kind of, this idea, uh, Dunzi will uh, dissolve all by itself. Death will swoop on you so quickly... Gather merit till that moment comes. For even if you throw off, even if you then throw off your indolence, what will you do when there is no more time? So, you know, you, if you if you attend uh, people on their deathbed, you know, it's very interesting to see the difference between a person who has done practice and has, you know, spent a good deal of their time in helping people. Um, they are much more serene than people who have been busy all the time and have never done any kind of spiritual training. A person like that is always afraid, terrified. Most people die in confusion and fear, whether they're actually killed or whether they're, you know, 
at the end of a long agony. Um, the only way to the only way for us to prevent that happening to ourselves is to, uh, you know, do something about it now while there's still time. And so Shantideva then goes on about he sort of mentions this sort of lazy attitude of busyness. This I have not done, and this I am only starting, and this I am only halfway through. Then is the sudden coming of the Lord of Death, and oh, the thought, alas, I am finished. You look. Then we come to this passage that Holly was t- talking about the other day. You look upon the faces of your hopeless friends, their tear-stained cheeks, their red and swollen eyes, for such will be the depths of their distress. And then you'll see the heralds of the, Lord, of the deadly Lord. The memory of former sins will torture you. The screams and din of hell will break, on your, break upon your ears. With very terror you will foul yourself. What will you do in such delirium? If, like living fish that twists and writhes, you are so terrified while still alive, he means while you're thinking about this now, what need to speak of pain unbearable in the hells created by past evil deeds? <clears throat> so that's actually the technique. That's what you must do if you find that you can't actually put your behind down on the cushion to and, and do the practice. You must you you have to sort of tell yourself that there isn't much time and you better go on with it. So um you know the uh, one thing I I've I've been wanting to say on, on several occasions is that um now, many of the things that Shantideva says are kind of a bit crude, you might find, a bit too strong, uh, a bit kind of medieval or, you know, foreign, not sophisticated. But the thing is that uh, it's very important in texts like this, and I think in, in Buddhist teachings generally, to take things at their face value, not to try to dumb them down or to dilute them by, um, you know, explanation, sort of new agey explanations. Um, <clears throat> I think it's I think I think it's useful to uh, take Shantideva at his word and actually try to do what he says. So then he says he then was, he talked about inclination to unwholesome actions, and he just gives one stanza about this. And he says, "You turn your back upon the sacred doctrine, supreme joy and boundless source of bliss. Why delight in mere excitement?" in distractions that will cause you misery. So he's contrasting, really, the, the teachings of the Dharma on, you know, whatever it might be, precious human life, um, compassion, refuge, bodhicitta, all the tantric practices that one might learn about. Uh, and we sort of leave them, you know. We get it, we, what, what often happens is that people get very enthusiastic about receiving teachings, about going to see this or that lama, about getting an empowerment, and so on. But actually, they don't. We we don't do and we don't do much about it. You know, you you can you can uh, receive an empowerment, and one empowerment is enough to take you to Buddhahood. But actually, what we often do is just collect them, and we don't actually implement the teachings, which is a pity. No, the, there is a there's a proverb that um, uh, the Indi- uh, a Tibetan proverb which says that uh, the Indians received one empowerment and retained Buddhahood, uh, the Tibetans receive a hundred empowerments and don't get anywhere. 
<clears throat> it's kind of a Tibetan thing, you know, the, because I suppose because, you know, the Tibetan Dharma is so rich, there's so many lineages, so such a lot of interest and so on that one tends to uh, get interested, but, but miss the point, in fact. So then uh, Shantideva goes on to talk about um, um, defeatism, this feeling that, uh, you know, I can't do it. And remember that, you know, this is a very common experience, I think, for most of us. You know, you, you, you read about, um, you know, these incredible uh, educational programs that they have in the monasteries. And, you know, these people sort of learn how to debate for hours and hours and they memorize huge texts and they study for years and they get their, you know, they become Kempos and Geshe's after 20 or 20, 25 years of study. Or then you, you read the stories of the great yogis who go off to the mountains and endure all sorts of um, hardships and um, have this incredible um, diligence and, um, and you feel, you know, that I'm, I'm com it's completely out of my league. I'll, I'll never be able to do anything like that. And um, the result of that is that you actually don't do anything. You, you don't do what you're able to do. Uh, which is often quite a lot in a, in a given situation. So uh, Shantideva says you mustn't sink into that kind of laziness, a feeling that you can't do it, a sort of kind of disempowerment. So he says, do not be downcast, but marshal all your powers. Make an effort. Be the master of yourself. Practice the equality of self and other. Practice the exchange of self and other. This is the first time in the text that he mentions these two practices, which are actually the main practice of uh, relative bodhicitta. They, they, he goes into them in much greater detail in the following chapter, but he just mentions them briefly here. And then he goes on, Oh, but how could I become enlightened? Don't excuse yourself with such despondency. The Buddha who declares the truth has spoken, has truly spoken and proclaimed that if they bring forth strength of perseverance, even bees and flies and gnats and grubs will gain supreme enlightenment so hard to find. And if by birth and lineage of humankind I am able to distinguish good from ill and do not leave aside the bodhisattva deeds, why should I not attain the state of Buddhahood? <clears throat> so that's something we should uh, also reflect upon and remind ourselves that we already have a great deal going for us. We have attained this, uh, this human existence where we are able to you know, have this kind of um, intelligence, uh, ability to discern. We have the, the capacity to receive teachings and implement them. <clears throat> we already have uh, learnt a lot about the Dharma. I mean, all you sitting here, I'm sure you do. You have met qualified teachers. Uh, you're living in a in a you're free. You're living in a country where you can do what you like. You're not in constant threat of being uh, bombed or uh, murdered, or you're not living in a state of extreme poverty. So m you've got many advantages that uh, actually we've got many of uh, many advantages that most even most humans in the world don't have. So we should we should think of that and and think you know. So many good things have happened to me. All I need to do is try to put them into put the teachings into practice. 
And it's not so difficult, Shantideva says. He says, uh, of course, you may say that I must give away my life and limbs, alarms and frightens me. If so, you say, you know, hearing the stories of the great Bodhisattvas. He says, your terror is misplaced. Confused, you fail to see what's hard and what is easy. For myriads of ages, measureless, uncounted, your body has been cut, impaled, burned, torn, for times past numbering. Yet none of this has brought you Buddhahood. This is a, there's a nice passage in Pema Chodron's commentary on this text where she says, you know, if austerities were all that needed, if hardships were all that were necessary, we'd be Buddhas already. You know, we've had so much of it. Um, <clears throat> he goes on, the hardships suffered on the path to Buddhahood are limited in their extent and likened to the pain of an incision made to cure the harms of inward ills. It's an interesting comment. I suppose it indicates that they, you know, in ancient India, they knew something about surgery. Um, <clears throat> and all our doctors cure disease by means of bitter remedies. Likewise, to destroy a vast amount of pain, we should be patient with our little hurts. So, you know, they often say that, um, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you see these athletes who sort of torment, torture themselves to, you know, to get in shape and to win their contests and so on, with all the kind of enthusiasm and constancy, you know, they say, the lamas often say, you know, if, 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 if we practice like that, we'd have been enlightened long ago. You know, it doesn't take it doesn't even take years of practice. Actually, if you if you meet the right teacher and uh, and uh, adopt the right methods, and so he says. And yet, our supreme healer does not use like them, like those doctors, these common remedies. With ways of extreme tenderness, he soothes away intense and boundless sufferings. Our guide instructs us to begin by giving vegetable greens or other little things. And later, step by step, the habit once acquired, we may be able to donate our very flesh. For when we truly feel, our bodies are no different from the given herbs. What hardships can they be in giving up, relinquishing our very flesh? So basically he's saying the essence of the Buddha Dharma is gradual training. So step by step, as it says in the vow, the bodhisattvas who train step by step. Um, <clears throat> And um, he's actually, he will mention, he's already mentioned, we saw yesterday, the, the way in which Buddhism uh, distinguishes mind from body and how one can um, adopt an attitude to one's body, which on the one hand is realistic in the sense that it's important to use one's body as a, as a vehicle for the practice, but also you can... Um, come to regard it as just a kind of appendage or a, a piece of property which in the end is no more real than a cabbage or a piece of lettuce that you might give to somebody to eat. Um, of course, this, is, this, is an, this is a, uh, comes after, after a, a long um, uh, period of training. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I went to tell you that, uh, because people have made this remark, if you have something to say, just put your hand up and say it. Please, uh, please ask questions, because, uh, you know, there's an awful lot to get through, and uh, we'll, have a kind of, we'll have a kind of period of question and answer at the end, but if something strikes you, then do say. Yeah. So this is one point that... Oh, 
This has been one point that's confused me, is the notion that <clears throat> mind and body are separate and that mind is um, the Lord, or, or however you want to say it, uh, over body. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is more new age, but it certainly is more contemporary that mind and body are one and they're not separate. Uh, yeah, they are one. And they're not separate. But the, the fact is, it is a matter of experience when you think. You think you can think about your body, right? Uh, it's not, and it's your mind that's thinking about it. It's just, it's just the, 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 the teaching, I, th I think, here is very pragma pragmatic. It's not a sort of big philosophical statement. But it... I mean, I mean, when you say when you say yes, of course, that the mind and body are very intimately linked. Yes, indeed, they are. But when you sort of reflect about yourself, you do experience a kind of split, don't you? Yeah, and yeah. I think that it's also been named that there's a difference between conceptual body and body body. What do you mean? Well, body we the body that we experience is often through the mind and mm. through our thoughts yes. versus the actuality of the body. You mean the body is an objective thing outside the mind? Is that what um, you mean? Oh, that sounds like tricky kind of territory. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that, you're, what you're saying sounds like a kind of uh, a sort of therapeutic theory, which as far as I'm concerned is fine. Uh, but, uh, but here I'm just talking about this very simple experience of when you sort of think about your body, there is this sort of separation, right? You mean you can actually decide to donate your body to science. Or you can, you know, if somebody is really sick, you can give them a kidney. So the, that which is deciding this is your mind. And what it's doing is doing something to an object which is your body. Of course, if you look at it another way around, which of course is very important in Buddhism too, that the mind and body are very intimately uh, connected. But the fact is that in, when death happens, at least from the Buddhist perspective, uh, the body is what is left. The body is what you put in the ground or you burn, while it, whereas the mind stream continues to evolve. That's a Buddhist attitude. Yeah. That's a Buddhist approach, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I could continue on, but. <clears throat> Thank you. Okay. Yeah. You don't agree, I guess. Yeah. Well, I still, the question remains, you know. Mm. I mean, is, it, is that to say that the breath that we breathe, that it, 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 isn't, it doesn't exist um, beyond our thought of it? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there are there, it depends who you talk to. Uh, you know, there are different Buddhist schools that will say different things to that question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, um, Having, uh, having sort of um, uh, talked about the 
the training and how it's not as bad as you might think. Um, he then goes on to say that uh, you know he's, he tries to Shantideva all, all tends to do, what Shantideva tends to do is to give you a kind of rather difficult message, uh, and then will sort of say all sorts of things to encourage you to get you sort of you know moving along, and so he says that. Um, Um, in, the, in the case of the body, he said, merit is the true cause of the body's ease, while happiness of mind is had through understanding. What, what can sadden those who have compassion, who remain within samsara for the sake of beings? So he's saying that you know, the body's ease, the fact that one has a certain kind of birth, the fact that one has physical health and strength and so on, is a result of merit, which we talked about before this kind of positive energy that comes from uh, virtuous practice, positive uh, deeds. And uh, the happiness of one's mind is brought about through wisdom, through understanding. And so he says, uh, what can sadden bodhisattvas, those who are following the bodhisattva path, what can sadden those who have compassion, who remain within samsara for the sake of beings? So this goes back to this idea that uh, for someone who um, has really um, trained in bodhicitta, uh, for whom uh, the most important task is to protect beings, to relieve their sufferings, to guide them towards happiness, um, they themselves are, become quite indifferent to their own physical condition in the sense that they're quite, they're quite uh, prepared to undergo all sorts of hardships in order to uh, enable them to help beings. So there's that wonderful image in the, the, an earlier chapter where he says they are like, they, they, they can plunge into the depths of hell with the same joy that a, a swan sweeps down on a lotus lake. Um, <coughs> the question of whether uh, a realized bodhisattva actually feels pain is an interesting one. And uh, I'm not, I haven't really got a clear answer about that. But uh, what seems to happen is that when, when somebody gets, you know, has followed that path, uh, they can endure suffering in a quite different way from the way we do. You know, like, they, of course there is pain, but they don't identify with it because they recognize the dreamlike quality of experience, um, and so their minds remain serene. So there's a there's a story I heard from Zika uh, Kongshu uh, Rinpoche, who was visiting. He visited some um, yogi in the mountains somewhere, great practitioner, and this this um, this man was uh, had, was suffering from a terrible uh, disease that affected his legs, and his legs were all ulcerated. And uh, no doubt, extremely painful. And uh, so they arrived, and uh, they, were, you know, they sort of greeted him. And they said, "Well, how are you?" And he kind of laughed, and he said, "Well, um, this old body is having a few problems, but actually, it's fine. I'm quite happy." He wasn't. He wasn't sort of um, overwhelmed by you know his physical condition. And I think that's something that we can we can also acquire. You know, maybe not to that extent, but uh, you can 
you, you, pain is an interesting phenomenon, actually, if you, when you have it, to sort of work with it and sort of look at it and ask yourself, where is it? Um, you know, a corpse doesn't feel pain. Pain only happens when a mind is present. And so, is the pain in the mind? If it's in the mind, why do I feel it in my leg? And all those, you know, you can also do all sorts of interesting thought experiments. And gradually you can sort of detach. And uh, in fact, you know, I don't know if you do this in America, but in, in England, they have uh, what they call pain clinics, where they, uh, the, they actually specialize in how to manage pain. You know, because people, you know, you, you can only do so much with uh, uh, painkillers. And people who have very chronic uh, injuries or, you know, terrible back problems and so on, they're in pain almost constantly. And so they, you know, in, this, in these kind of clinics, they kind of drop all the sort of medical orthodoxy. And they'll, they're, ready, they're ready to try anything. Even meditation, they say. <laughs> so... Um, He then says, um, Mounted on the horse of Bodhicitta, which puts to flight all mournful weariness, what lucid person could be in despair, proceeding in this way from joy to joy? He's talking about those, you know, the bodhisattvas who take delight in relieving others. The forces that secure the good of beings are aspiration, steadfastness, relinquishment, and joy. So he talk, he's now going to talk about these four forces that um, strengthen uh, one's feeling of diligence. So aspiration grows through fear of suffering and the contemplation of the benefits to be attained. Therefore, leaving everything that is averse to it, I'll labor to increase my diligence through aspiration and self-confidence, relinquishment and joy. He actually repeats the same thing. I suppose to sort of underline the importance of these four uh, strengths. Um, <clears throat> I don't think there's anything really to say about it uh, apart from um, simply to read the text. Um, Again, if you have things to say, don't hesitate to. Uh, yeah, one of the uh, one of the um, things that Shantideva says. Um, is to you know raise this uh, sort of train in this feeling of steadfastness, this constancy. Uh, you know that not only do you have this uh, uh, inclination and inspiration to follow the path, but you need to cultivate a kind of constancy. You know, a sort of staying power, and often uh, that has to do with being realistic with uh, about your own capacity. And not try to, you know, what what often ha what I often see happening in in uh, Dharma centers is that uh, people they get a kind of unreal 
idea about what they're able to do. You know, like they want to do what the Lama, to live, to be like the Lama, or they want to sort of go off and be like Milarepa or something. And uh, of course, it's too difficult. And so they try, and then they lose heart, and then they drop it. So it's far better to have a, a kind of low key um, attitude to one's own, a realistic but low key and modest attitude towards what one is able to do, and then do it to keep to try to keep going. Um, so Shantideva uh, uses several kind of images to sort of increase this idea, and it's uh, as it came out. Somebody said yesterday, pointed out that. Um, something actually that I hadn't noticed, which is amazing because it's actually almost on every page, is that Shantideva has this rather aggressive attitude to uh, his own weaknesses. And uh, the way of the Bodhisattva has quite a lot of images of fighting, uh, being a soldier, being a a hero. Uh, You know, I won't give up until I see my enemy sort of dead on the ground in front of me. Uh, I must be like somebody who uh, in a, who drops his sword in a fight. I must get it back as quickly as possible before I get before the defilement uh, harms me and so on and It may well be that it that uh, you know since he 's supposed to have been from a royal caste, the royal caste, he may well have had this kind of you know militaristic gene or you know he may have you know had the actually there are stories there are stories about him where he he went off to be a king's guard and used a wooden with a wooden sword but uh, you can find you can find that story in the commentary um, <clears throat> um, and so what he does here is he says it's important to be proud it's important to have the feeling of self worth and he says this kind of pride is not the same as ordinary arrogance, in which you sort of look down on other people and think you're special. He said, this pride is a feeling that I can do it, a feeling that you know, a feeling of inner strength. He said, this is a good kind of pride. It's not something you should try to get rid of. Perhaps we would say self-confidence would be a more appropriate word, but still, you, you know, uh, this kind of feeling of self-worth is, in, is, is, in, is an important feature of the path, because you need to, it gives you strength, and the path needs strength. So he says, um, he says, let me first consider my reserves, to start or not to start accordingly. It might be better not to start, but once begun, I should not then withdraw. For if I do such things, the pattern will return in later lives, and sin and pain will grow and other actions will be left undone, or else will bear a meager fruit. Action, the afflictions, and ability, three things to which my pride should be directed. I will do this, I myself alone. These words define my pride of action. Overpowered by their mind's afflictions, worldly folk are helpless to secure their happiness. Compared with those who wander, since I have received the teachings, I am able This, therefore, shall be my task. When others give themselves to low behavior, what shall be my stance in their regard? In any case, I'll not be arrogant. My best way is to give up such conceit. So the pride he's talking about is never a kind of um, attitude of demeaning 
other people or thinking that they're thinking that you are better than they are. He says, when they find a dying serpent, even crows behave like soaring eagles. So, of course, a crow wouldn't dare approach a healthy serpent, but if they find a dying one, then they'll come and peck it because they, they know it's, uh, it can't retaliate. Therefore, if I'm weak and feeble-hearted, even little faults will strike and injure me. So he's saying here that uh, this kind of uh, self-respect, this kind of feeling of self-worth, is also a protection against the sort of petty things that we might do, you know, the petty remarks of criticizing others or sneaky, uh, deceitful things that one might do. It, it's, not, it's not worthy of us. So this, is a, you know, this feeling is a way of actually protecting us from, from such things. But if depressed, I give up trying. How can I gain freedom from my abject state? But if I stand my guard with proud resolve, it will be hard for even great faults to attack me. Therefore, with a steadfast heart, I'll get the better of my weaknesses. But if my failings get the other hand, my wish to overcome the triple world is laughable indeed. So, no need to talk about being a bodhisattva if you fall victim to these petty um, afflictions. He goes on, I will be victor over all, and nothing shall prevail and bring me down. The offspring of the lion, the conqueror, should constantly abide in this self-confidence. Those whom arrogance destroys, he's talking about the bad pride now, are thus defiled. They lack self-confidence. They lack the kind of pride he's talking about. But those who have true confidence escape the foe, while others fall into the power of an evil pride, which he now goes on to describe. When arrogance inflates the mind, it draws it down to states of misery or ruins happiness should human, human birth be gained. Thus one is born a slave, dependent for one's sustenance, and so on. So, um, you know, he, he goes on and on about this. I will never bow and scrape towards, uh, to my defiled emotions. I will, never, uh, I, will, I will strive to get the better of them. So this, uh, he says, one should... One should uh, have this kind of pride, and one should at the same time develop a strong sense of carefulness, of watchfulness of, the, of one's... Uh, you know, he says, when the soldier drops his sword, he swiftly takes it up again. So likewise, if the arm of mindfulness is lost, in fear of hell, I'll quickly get it back. Um, <clears throat> and it's important not to let small things uh, re uh, remain in the mind, small faults remain in the mind, uh, because just as poison fills the body, born on the current of the blood, likewise evil, when it finds its chance, will spread and permeate the mind. So even little things, if you neglect them, can become big problems. So, and of course, when the, if you manage to catch the defilement right at the beginning, when it's weak, then you, it's easier to do something about it. Whereas, you know, when you're completely overwhelmed by aggression or desire or something, it's quite hard to withstand. So this uh, brings to an end um, Shantideva's reflection on heroic perseverance. Now, now I think of it, maybe heroic is uh, actually quite an appropriate word, uh, you know, for the as a title. Um, Shantideva then mo moves on to um, the eighth chapter, 
meditative uh, concentration, uh, where he talks about the actual practice. And you remember that uh, when we were talking about bodhicitta, we said that it can be classified in various ways. You can talk about bodhicitta in intention and bodhicitta in engagement. And in the case of bodhicitta in engagement, you can divide it again into relative bodhicitta and ultimate bodhicitta. Relative, uh, ultimate bodhicitta being actually wisdom, the wisdom of emptiness, the uh, realization of the nature of the mind, and so on and so forth. And relative bodhicitta is everything on the path that brings one to that state. So all the uh, mind training teachings, uh, all the teachings on compassion, love, and so on, um, discipline, the vows, all that is part of relative bodhicitta. And in this chapter, he take, uh, Chantideva takes up the, the two practices that he mentioned just, just before, the equalization of self and other and the exchange of self and other. And these are actually the quintessence of the practices of relative bodhicitta. And uh, it's quite very arguable uh, that, at least this is what uh, Tubten Jimpa says, as uh, we were looking at it together, Sarah and I, this morning. Um, <clears throat> he says that probably uh, it's in this, in, in Chant, with Shantideva that the whole Lojong teachings begin. Of course, they, in Tibet, they really take off with uh, Atisha uh, and the Kadampa tradition. But their roots are here. Uh, or at any rate, this is one place where their roots are. No doubt there are other other texts and other teachers, I mean the Buddha himself indeed, uh, who, which are the origin of the Lojong teachings, which I think are quite familiar to many of you. Um, so this chapter is divided into two main sections. Uh, the first one, the first section is to do with creating the congenial conditions for meditative concentration, and then a description of the meditation itself. So, uh, in this first section, Shantideva talks about uh, the importance of solitude, the importance of practice, and he talks about the uh, obstacles to this which we have to deal with. So, um, bear in mind, he was a monk in this huge uh, monastery in India, and I guess it's, uh, you know, Tibetan monasteries are, are very similar. Uh, monasteries uh, in t for Tibetans are extremely busy places and extremely noisy. Uh, it's quite a shock when you come from a, uh, you know, the Christian contemplative tradition where you know the, for whole long periods of the day you're not allowed to speak at all and the whole place is in is cloaked in silence. Uh, um, <clears throat> whereas in Tibet, and you know, Tibetan monasteries are sort of hive of activity. Uh, people are doing all sorts of jobs and they're sort of screaming at each other and clapping their hands on the on the debate ground and so on. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Shantideva says, yes, uh, it's important to sort of withdraw from that and to um, quieten down. And of course, actually, that's probably what he was doing all his life, which was why people didn't like him, because he didn't get involved in uh, the activities of the, of the monastery. So he says that... Uh, um, cultivating diligence, as we've just described, 
In concentration I will place my mind. For those whose minds are slack and wandering are caught between the fangs of the afflictions. So it's quite easy to be very, a very busy monk and at the same time, and even a very learned and uh, studious monk, but at the same time to have a slack mind, a mind that is not being uh, um, constantly, um, how to say, observed and kept under control by the forces of mindfulness. So if your mind is slack and wandering, it's certain that you are caught in the fangs of the afflictions. The afflictions will certainly arise in an undisciplined mind. You will cause misery for yourself and unhappiness to everyone around you. And he says, In solitude the mind and body are not troubled by distraction. Therefore leave this worldly life and totally abandon mental wandering. Because of loved ones and desire for gain, we fail to turn away from worldly things. These then are the first things to renounce. The prudent should conduct themselves like this. Now this is quite a this is quite um, a challenge for our, us. Uh, in the case of Shantideva's monastic community, they had at least in theory already renounced uh, family life, right? Loved ones, and uh, in theory they had renounced uh, desire for gain. Uh, perhaps. Um, I don't, I don't think it worked out terribly well in in, in practice, but <clears throat> you know the uh, anyway that's that was the idea, and uh, so Shanti David talks about this, and he says it's in, if we fail to turn away from worldly things, uh, we won't get anywhere, and so this is actually quite an important thing for us to think about because we are not monks or nuns, we're not living in a monastery, uh, but as I said, you know, Tibetan monasteries, Indian monasteries are quite busy places, so they're not different from us in the sense that they're idle or, you know, just sitting, uh, meditating all day. On the other hand, we have, uh, we live in families, we have wives and husbands and children, and f we have responsibilities. And we are emotionally caught up in those relationships, uh, which is completely natural and anyway unavoidable. So the question is, what do you do with that? How do you cultivate a sense of solitude? Um, this is uh, something for everyone to find out for themselves according to their own possibilities. You know, how to take time off, how to take a, f a few minutes here and there to uh, reflect quietly on the teachings. It's an important aspect of life and, you know, it's not easy to implement, of course. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's also the question of emotional attachment. And uh, we, we broached this question earlier when we were talking about uh, equanimity, you know, the four mind changes of love, compassion, um, joy, and equanimity. I think, I think we talked about it. And I said, you know, we, the way we divide the world into three sections, and uh, you know, some, some people are important to us, some are not, and so on. And in other words, what we've done is to divide the world according to our own egocentric attitude. So when you sort of reflect in that way, you can see that uh, your child, your dear baby, your husband, your lover, whatever, at the same time that they are in the moment very important, it's important to remember also that this is a very, very transient situation. They have come from 
uh, an incalculable series of lives in the past, and so have I, and we've sort of met in this place, like travellers in a railway station uh, or in a hotel, and eventually we will split, we will divide, we will go our different ways. So uh, that's actually a very, a very useful idea because it, it throws into perspective um, the nature of the relationship. You know, you, you can say, well, um, we've got together at this moment, let's be happy, let's not spoil it by being you know, selfish or uh, aggressive or so on. But at the same time, uh, the teachings are always, are always sort of calling us to kind of step back a little and to realize that, uh, you know, our children are, of course, very special, but they're actually not different from other children. And if you look at them, for, if you look at the situation from the children's point of view, they are completely the same from their point of view, even though from our egocentric point of view, they look very different in terms of importance or not. So that's what Shantideva is basically saying, that um, we should kind of withdraw and if one can do if one can do that in a you know if one has the capacity to take monastic vows if one has that and 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 cultivate genuine renunciation then that is a very wonderful thing uh, but if we haven't got that that interest or capacity or possibility there are plenty of other ways to uh, follow the path and the bodhisattva is not automatically um a monastic uh, you know, especially in the, the Nyingma tradition, the greatest lamas are, have all been married um, in our modern age. I mean, not all, but uh, quite a lot. Um, <clears throat> um, Sakya Trinzin is a married man, and so on. Uh, anyway, he then goes on to talk about the problem of craving, uh, wanting to search for a partner and craving for a partner, craving for a lover. Uh, and which is felt as much by uh, monks as by any other men, uh, or by, uh, as much by nuns as any other women. So he, uh, he goes into this long sort of description. And I think, actually, he's, he's, doing, it like, he's doing it as a kind of joke. It's sort of, it's sort of light-hearted when he talks about you know, all the, you know, the complicated arrangements in ancient India for you know, finding a wife and the... You know the wealth you have to accumulate, and uh, you know poor men they spend their whole time trying to get enough money in order to marry. And by the time they've got enough, they're too old, and uh, so on and so forth. And and you know you're completely besotted with the body of this lover. Uh, how come you're not you're not still interested when it's lying in the charnel ground and being uh, uh, eaten by the crows and the jackals? You know, it's it's perfectly true that you you. Uh, you know, we love our, our partners or, or our parents or our children, but if they died, you wouldn't have them in the house for 24 hours, you know. <laughs> it's worth thinking about, right? <clears throat> so, um, he says similar things about property, how property, you know, is all going to be given up anyway. There are no as they say in Lancashire, where I come from, there are no pockets in shrouds. You can't take it with you. So property, you know, that puts in, in perspective um, <clears throat> all the uh, amount of time that we spend accumulating riches and so on. Um, then, uh, having sort of talked about the 
conditions congenial to um, concentration. He then talks about, and we don't really have time, I'm afraid, to go into this in great detail, but um, he talks about the equality of self and other and the exchange of self and other. Let me just find the... Yes, it's... And this is also another uh, a difficult, um, a new, a rather novel, strange idea uh, to begin with for us. So it, once again, it's, it's worth uh, thinking about it carefully and, uh, and taking it seriously. Uh, he says, um, Strive at first to meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. Thus be guardian of all as of yourself. In joy and sorrow, he's talking about the experiences. Uh, in joy and sorrow, we are all the same. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to suffer. Uh, there's a kind of, as they say in Tibetan, the beings have the same taste. They are all, we are all the same. And then he says, the hand and other limbs are many and distinct, but all are one, the body to be kept and guarded. Likewise, different beings in their joys and sorrows are, like me, all one in wanting happiness. So it's because we are all the same, it's as if we are all members of a single body, right? just as our hands and feet are members of our body. right? <clears throat> and then he says, interestingly, this pain of mine does not afflict or cause discomfort to another's body. Yet this pain is hard for me to bear, because I cling and take it for my own. Another being's pain I do not feel, and yet because I take them for myself, their suffering is mine and therefore hard to bear. So what he's saying is that, um, a bit like the, the, you know, the, the old yogi who had the ulcers on his legs, uh, he hadn't. He didn't sort of take the pain as his own. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't part of his self-identification. He'd managed to separate, you know, the body from his mind in a way. And so, in this, but in our case, when we get sick, when we get a headache, backache, and so on, we really kind of fall into it, and it's we become miserable. Our minds become miserable because the pain because of the pain of our bodies, right? We are completely overwhelmed by it, and we're overwhelmed by it because we've identified this body, this limb, this sore, this injury with ourselves. And the reason why we don't feel the pain of others, we don't, we're not sensitive to the pain of others, is that we can't cling to it in the same way, or we don't cling to it in the same way that we cling to this pain here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but on the other hand, he says, if I were able to do so, because I take them for myself, their suffering is mine, and therefore hard to bear. So it seems to me that there is a kind of uh, um, a, a sort of range of degrees in which this happens. So right, right from now, you know, one can say, following the argument, that uh, insofar as beings become important to me through the practice of the uh, mind training or, you know, uh, Shantideva's teaching, to the extent that they become important to me, I am concerned with their pain. And t 
to the extent that I can actually sort of welcome them in to my own feeling of being a self, to that extent, uh, I will feel their pain. So, uh, you know, in the commentary of, uh, of Kempo Kumpel, he says that um, uh, a mother who has a baby, and the baby is uh, in great distress and ill, the mother suffers because, the, because she identifies so closely with the baby. The, it's almost as if she's feeling the pain of the child. She suffers along with the child. It's like the, child, the child's suffering is her suffering, and she will do anything to remove it. Right? So to the extent that uh, we can sort of identify with beings, and th- to that extent we, we will be eager to do something to remove their pain. I mean, you know, on a very kind of mundane level, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but if you buy a new car and it's there, wonderful, and somebody comes and scratches the paint, it's almost like they sort of scratched you, (laughs) you know, because the car is actually part of your ego identification. You know, it's so precious to you. So, I mean, Campbell Kumpel says the same, but in terms of a horse, you know. He says, if you're, uh, when you're, de- when you're de- dealing horse dealing and you're selling your horse, until the time that you actually sell it, you're concerned about whether it's hungry, whether it's well, whether it's tired. But as soon as the transaction takes place, that, all those concerns go from you uh, to the buyer. From the point of view of the horse, of course, there's no difference. Right. <coughs> so... Um, He says, therefore, I will, therefore I'll dispel the pain of others, for it is simply pain, just like my own. And others I will aid and benefit, for they are living beings, like my body. Since I and other beings both, in wanting happiness, are equal and alike, what difference is there to distinguish us, that I should strive to have my bliss alone? Since I and other beings both, in fleeing suffering, are indeed alike, what difference is there to distinguish us that I should save myself and not the others? <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, um, to use a, a quite interesting, I, I find it quite interesting, you may find it fairly far-fetched. He says that um, since the pain of others does no harm to me, I do not shield myself from it. This is a kind of ob- uh, this is a sort of uh, objection being made to him. Someone's saying to him, uh, "I don't feel uh, other people's pain, so why should I be concerned? Why should I try to get rid of it? It's not my pain, right?" And so he said, and the answer to this is, "So why to guard against my future pain, which does no harm to this, my present me?" Right. To think that I will... Yes, so let's deal with this first. So basically, this, this, this idea, this argument is based in uh, the Buddhist um, understanding of what a person is, what a continuum is, right? And, uh, and on, uh, on understand, the correct understanding of impermanence, right? So when you... Um, when you when you're talking when you're getting teachings on impermanence, you say, you, uh, you you one hears about uh, what's known as uh, gross impermanence or coarse impermanence and subtle impermanence. 
And gross impermanence is what happens when you uh, take a cup and smash it. That's gross impermanence. The, the cup ceases to exist. Right? Now the question is, how is it possible for a cup to move from existence into non-existence? And according to the Buddhist uh, way of looking at it, it's because the cup is not a stable, individual, unchanging entity. Uh, it is actually... Uh, because the Buddhists have this idea of atomic, they have a sort of atomic theory that you can divide the cup into smaller and smaller particles. And you can divide uh, the life of a cup into smaller and smaller um, instants. And so they say, if you, uh, e even, even in a finger snap, you would say that's a very short moment. But uh, if you have a kind of a pile of 100 lotus leaves and you hammer a nail through it, in a, single, in a single moment, it's done. But the fact that you've got a hundred lotus leaves that, it's got, that the nail has gone through shows that that moment can be divided into a hundred parts and, and so on until you get down to the, what they think, is, think of as an indivisible uh, instant. Now, uh, the spe specificity of the Buddhist view here is that when you observe change in a thing, it's not that there is something that is actually getting older, but at each individual moment, a thing is, the thing is replaced one moment by moment according to the subtle impermanence. You know, the, the, cup, the cup is there one moment, and it's replaced by a second cup in the next moment. And we think, we think of it as being a single cup because it happens so quickly. But the... Um, or, for instance, when you see uh, somebody gets a, uh, a firebrand and they whirl it round in the air and it looks like a solid circle, but in fact it's just points of light going round. And we don't, we don't see the points of light because our senses are not that quick. So we don't notice the change. So uh, the thing is that the difference between... Um, You've heard of uh, the extremes of permanence and annihilation, I suppose, when you're talking about uh, Madhyamika or wisdom and so on, uh, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna. And he says that actually to think that something uh, completely ceases to exist is one extreme. To think that something uh, continues to exist from one moment to the next is the view of permanence. So, to cut a long story short, whereas we tend to think, and the Hindus think, that there is an individual self that passes through life from one moment to the, mo the next, according to the Buddhist view, it's, there, there isn't an individual unchanging substance that passes through time, but rather there are individual instants that are constantly being replaced. Right? So, in other words, you get the continuity, apparent continuity in a phenomenon, without actually something passing from one moment to the next. The fact that we see it as a, as a continuum is just because we don't notice. We don't, we're not quick enough to notice. So when you talk about rebirth, or when you talk about uh, myself sometime in the future, uh, according to this view, it's not that you yourself have passed from this moment into the next moment, or from this life to the next life, but there is a constant replacement, a constant continuum, continuum which continues into 
the future. So although there is obviously a connection, the future you is not the present you or present me. And Shantideva is saying that future me is as alien from my present me as the guy next, next to me in the present moment. So it's true. We, the, his, this is answer to the, the objection. Why should I bother about the suffering of others when it's not my suffering? At the same time, I'm bothered about the, my future suffering, but it's not my present suffering. It's an interesting, interesting idea. Um, and so, yeah. Anyway, you, you, you get the message, I guess. So he's, he's saying that um, that's not an argument to say that uh, I'm not concerned about this other person's suffering, I'm only concerned about my future suffering because your future suffering is just as alien to you now as this other guy's. And so he will come back to them, his main point um, that um, suffering has no possessor. Therefore, no distinctions can be made. Pain is just pain. Right? We are all suffering it. And therefore, to sort of compartmentalize it into the, your suffering, my suffering, is like cutting, taking space and trying to cut it with a pair of scissors. <clears throat> so this is... Uh, um, yeah? <laughs> I, I can slow down no. um, is, is there not a bit of a paradox there um, this separate not being able to separate one's pain and others pain and the teaching that you said earlier which is that um, in fact if one wants to become to become a bodhisattva one cannot actually take away the pains of others unless one has become like um, essentially a Buddha oneself. Mm. Yeah, in a way, I think there is a paradox. I, th I, think, I think that uh, ultimately what you say is true, but in the meantime, you know, you sort, of, you, sort of, you sort of approach this practice from two sides. On the one hand, you can look at it from the ultimate bodhicitta point of view and, uh, you know, or rather the ultimate goal, point of view of the ultimate goal, where you strive to attain enlightenment so that you are skillful in order to uh, help others. But you don't wait until you're enlightened, enlightened before you start. You can start right now, and actually what you're doing now is contributing to the, the path. So in a way it's a paradox, but at the same time, I think, is that, is that what you're talking about? No. It it sound, it feels very simple when you say that, and I'm so yeah. I think I think that's all. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so he says, you know, there are people who think, well, you know, this kind of practice, this feeling of compassion, this feeling of concern for others, is so disturbing. It causes me such pain. I'm actually increasing pain by being compassionate. And so Shantideva says, well, come off it. You know, it's just, this is only a small thing compared with the, uh, with the suffering of all beings. And you can put up with this little discomfort of your compassion in order to remove uh, the sufferings of everyone. And he says, um, 
the ocean-like immensity of joy arising when all beings will be freed. Will this be not enough? Will this not satisfy? The wish for my own freedom, what is that to me? <clears throat> well, there's a lot more to say, but I think we'd probably better move on. If, does anybody have more to ask? Or, um, it's a, this, this eighth chapter is a wonderful chapter, and it's worth reading many times, even though, uh, you know, what, you've got to get over the thing about, uh, you know, how ugly the um, impurity of the woman's body is. Once you've got over that bit, and, and just, you know, put it into proper context, then the rest of the, rest of the, uh, the chapter is really uh, marvelous. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we should now move on to, because uh, we're going to finish at 12, and we need to have some time for questions and discussion. So we should now move on to the uh, ninth chapter on wisdom. <laughs> That's good. Uh, give me a chance to find my papers. <laughs> this is really not worth... <laughs> Recording. Um, I, I, maybe I missed it because it came in late. But uh, so we're going to do the ninth chapter this morning. This afternoon, we're going to continue with the ninth chapter. No, we're going to talk about um, applications in modern world and everyday life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're going to listen to Judy mainly. What's that? <laughs> we're going to listen to Judy mainly. <laughs> uh, so, so we're kind of finishing. We're finishing the text this morning. So we're the ninth chapter we're going to do it now. is going to get short trip pretty much. <laughs> yeah, well, actually a bit longer than the last chapter. But, okay, uh, yeah, so. thanks. <laughs> um, so this, uh, this chapter has a terrible reputation. Uh, you know, everybody says this, you know, this is the, the most difficult, obscure part. Uh, and in a way, it's true. That, you know, it's about it's Shantideva talking about um, the wisdom of emptiness, and he's kind of ex- he's expounding uh, the view of the middle way, the Nagarjuna's middle way, the Madhyamika. And Madhyamika is a very uh, profound subject. It's very difficult to penetrate. Um, in order to uh, get anywhere with it. It's also a very fascinating subject, by the way. Uh, you need a competent teacher, a skilled teacher, uh, and you need to study a long time. You need a lot of merit to understand Majamika, and you need a lot of hard work and commitment, a lot of mental work, uh, if you want to study Madhyamaka, right? So when we come, well, in talking about the, the teachings on emptiness, you know, like they all say, Mipan Rimshi says that there are two approaches. There is the approach of the Panditas and there is the approach of the Yogis. And the approach of the Yogis is uh, those who uh, follow the instructions of their teacher and they immediately go into meditation 
And the point is that the teacher uh, actually uh, guides the student into what is in fact the heart of Madhyamaka, uh, points out the nature of the mind, gives instructions on to meditate, and then the person goes off and meditates, which might strike you as being rather easy. Uh, but in fact, there is, you know, you, you, know, you think of Madhyamaka as being all these uh, incredible obs- obscure arguments. But in fact, when the, you know, in Mahamudra and Dzogchen, when the teacher sort of gives these instructions, you have to spend months and months and years and years of meditation actually working, doing the kind of things that Nagarjuna's text or Shantideva's text is doing in a different way. Um, so... Uh, it's not necessarily an, uh, uh, an easy option, the way of the yogis. It, but it is, a, it is a question of uh, temperament and inclination. Some people are inclined to that, and that's their path. Uh, other people um, need to think, need to uh, reflect. And you can't pretend to be what you're not. You know? There's an interesting... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. There's an interesting passage in... Uh, Dujam Rinpoche's commentary on the three vows where he talks about Dzogchen and he says uh, Dzogchen works very well for people who are extremely with extremely sharp faculties or for idiots <laughs> for, those, for the, those who are in between it's very difficult because they have to go through all the different sort of you know different kinds of trainings and teachings um you know, and by idiot, he meant someone who has very little uh, kind of mental complexity, who uh, has implicit trust, unquestioning trust in, uh, in the teacher. And therefore, the teacher can kind of do something with that person. You know, there's this uh, story of Kinsa Rinpoche, who, I think Kinsa Rinpoche had this old servant who was totally useless and, uh, you know, was messy and dirty and inefficient uh, and uh, it was the last time that Rinpoche went back to Bhutan just before he died. And this old guy was uh, sort of had retired in this um, sort of, you know, this little shack in Punsoling. And uh, to everybody's surprise, he stopped and uh, went to see him. And he went into his room and they stayed together for, you know, quite some time. And then he left and went on, on to Paro, where he later died. And so it was his daughter, it was Kinsrimshi's daughter that told me this story. And she said, um, you know, they're Tibetans, so they have this kind of feeling of responsibility to their retainers. And so she felt, you know, she had, she should look after him. And uh, she heard that he died, that he'd, they'd found him dead. And so she went to the place and she sort of organized the, you know, the funeral. And there he was sitting up in bed. And so they, they put the body in, the, in a box and they took it to Paro. And by the time they got to Paro, it had shrunk, meaning that he'd, again, he'd gained uh, a kind of rainbow body. In other words, he'd, he'd, accom- he'd gained accomplishment on the, thanks to Kensu uh, Rimshi's guidance. So that, it's quite, you know, for someone like that, it, it works very well. But for the, for the large majority of people, we need to think. We need to sort of think our way through things. And uh, Madhyamika, for people like this, um, can be very useful. Um, because uh, reasoning 
is essential. And there is a very uh, interesting passage in um, Mipem Rinpoche's commentary to the adornment of the middle way, where he says that uh, for practice, for the, the path to be, to, to, in order to follow the path successfully, for practice to be effective, you have to have the correct view. You have to understand the view, the Buddhist view. And uh, in, as regards to the Buddhist view, you have to have absolute, unwavering conviction in it. He says, faith is not enough. You can, you can you know, listen to the Lama, listen to the teachings, and say, yes, of course, I believe it, I accept it. But that's not the same as con- of the conviction that comes from seeing that it is true. And in order to see that it is true, you have to, many people have to reason, you have to use reason. So, um, that's what, when you, when you open uh, uh, the Madhyamika Karakas of uh, Nagarjuna, that's what it is. It's a sort of uh, series of chapters of very subtle, uh, crazy arguments sometimes, you know, you, uh, where he, what, what he does is, that he takes all the different categories, I'm having to summarize here because we don't have that much time, all the different categories of experience, uh, even simple things like movement uh, or cause and effect, and he says that uh, all these things, everything works fine, provided you don't look too closely. Right? As, but as soon as you start to analyze, you will find that even the simplest operations of ordinary life are inexplicable. They are reason cannot explain what's going on. So um, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, uh, one thing that has helped me in, in sort of getting to grips with Madhyamika, because it you know it has all these different facets, all these different traditions and interpretations and debates and so on. So it's useful to get uh, a kind of clear, uh, one idea that gives you a key into what it's all about. And uh, a useful key is uh, the um, if, uh, a story, I suppose, an event uh, that happened when the Buddha, uh, after the Buddha had attained enlightenment, and he was a teacher, and he was approached by various um, uh, you know, uh, ascetics or students who wanted to debate with him or talk to him. And there was this particular guy called Vachagotta who uh, posed uh, four main questions. He said, uh, does the universe have a beginning or not, or both, or neither? Does the universe have an end or not, or both, or neither? Does the Buddha exist after death or not? Is the self identical with the body or not? In other words, he's asking questions about things that are, by their nature, beyond the range of empirical experience, uh, which, of course, doesn't usually phase philosophers because they like to use reasoning to you know, uh, actually go beyond uh, what, is av- what is immediately available to the senses and uh, come up with all sorts of theories about the, you know, the nature of phenomena or the universe. And to all these questions, the Buddha said nothing. He remained silent. 
And so this silence of the Buddha has caused a lot of comment, comment, but the general consensus among Buddhists is that the silence, his silence was the answer. And um, he said, he basically said that, um, well, you know, why was he silent? And like Vasubandhu, the great master Vasubandhu, uh, talking about the fourth question, whether the self is identical with the body, he said, um, the problem, the Buddha couldn't, didn't answer because he, the, he couldn't. There was no, the question was wrong. He said, since the self is totally inexistent, how could the Buddha have declared whether it was the same or different from the body? It's as if he had asked the Buddha, are the hairs of the tortoise smooth or curly? <laughs> Tortoises don't have hairs, so you, you, you can't say yes or no in answer to this. There's only silence is possible. Right? And so uh, at the end of this conversation, Vachagata disappointed, he asked the Buddha whether he has a theory of his own. He said, what, what do you think? And the, the Buddha said, the Tathagata, O Vacha, is free of all theories. But this does the Tathagata know, the nature of form, how form arises and passes away, the nature of feeling, and so on. Therefore, the Tathagata has, has attained liberation, and is free from attachment, inasmuch as all imaginings, all agitations or false notions concerning a self and anything pertaining to a self have gone, faded, ceased, have been given up, abandoned. So, because the Buddha doesn't immerse himself in intellectual theorizing about phenomena, he is actually able to discern their true nature. He actually sees form, he actually sees uh, feeling and so on, without sort of being clogged by uh, extraneous ideas. And then he says, um, in another situation, he says, to hold that the, the world is eternal, or to hold that it is not, or to agree to any other of your propositions of Acha, is the jungle of theorizing, the wilderness of theorizing, accompanied by distress and perturbation. It does not lead to tranquility and peace, to knowledge and the wisdom of nirvana. This is the danger I perceive in these views, which makes me discard them all. And he discards them, not because they're right or wrong, but because they are theories. They are stories that are actually irrelevant to the phenomenon itself. And so he says that uh, um, to say that things are, the things that things exist, or to say that things do not exist, are extremes. But I declare the truth from the middle position. That things are beyond existence and beyond non-existence. You know, as I said before, Nagarjuna actually shows that reason can't actually lay hold of the actual nature of phenomena. Even though we would very much like to um, think so. And um, so this is one of the, this was the reason actually after after the Buddha's enlightenment, and I, I think I mentioned it earlier that he said to himself that this uh, what I have discovered is something so subtle that I, I, ordinary people are not going to understand. So there's no point in my teaching. 
And so, as Nagarjuna says in the Karikas, he said, Knowing thus how hard it is for feeble minds to sound its depths, the Buddha's heart did utterly draw back from setting forth the doctrine. And it was only at the request of the gods that he agreed to try. And he said at that point, uh, Brahma, the, the god Brahma, had offered him a golden wheel and said, you know, there are some people in the world who might benefit, so don't, don't leave, don't go off in the, into Paranirvana. And he, says, he said to him, open to them, those people, are the doors to deathlessness, O Brahma. Let those who have ears throw off their old beliefs. So these old beliefs are all the theories about phenomena that we might entertain. By phenomena, I, not, I, I mean things. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, you're surrounded by things. Uh, as you move through life, you're surrounded by relationships. These two are things. These are also phenomena. Um, <clears throat> and this, uh, when, when the Buddha says, I declare the truth from the middle position, this is Madhyamaka. So right at the end of the Madhyamaka Karakas, Nagarjuna says, I bow down to Gautama, who set forth the doctrine for the destruction of all views, of all theories. He's actually said the same thing. And so what, what uh, Nagarjuna does throughout this entire book, it's very difficult, incomprehensible book, unless you have a, a, you know, a teacher and a commentaries and so on. What he's doing is he's using reason to demonstrate the incapacity of reason to lay hold to the nature of phenomena. That doesn't mean to say that there is nothing. All he's saying is that that which is the truth lies beyond the, ra the, the range of ordinary mind, the ordinary mind. And uh, so Chandrakirti uh, says in the Prasanapada, um, it is like the, the teaching of Nagarjuna is like somebody who is thirsty and who takes a cup and brings it to his lips. He doesn't drink the cup, he drinks the water. The arguments of Nagarjuna are the cup. What Nagarjuna delivers is this experience, this insight into, by implication, insight into the nature of phenomena. Um, as I say, you know, if, if you... If you if you want to if you want to follow this path if you, if the, if you're interested in it, it it takes a lot of work just to work through what Nagarjuna says, but gradually you begin to see you can't doubt it that what he says is true and you know it on the basis of reason you don't you don't know it on the basis of faith and that gives you an enormous confidence. This is something that uh, Sansa Kensi said that uh, studying Madhyamaka is like it's like making for yourself a suit of armor. Um, it gives you confidence. And even you know, in the face by all the kind of vicissitudes of life, you remain convinced in this truth. And this is the truth that actually liberates. So um, he says... Um, um, Yes, he said it's like a, um, a, she, a, a suit of armor that you're um, making for yourself. 
And um, Mipam Rinpoche takes up this idea too, and he says that by using these kind of arguments, by understanding Madhyamaka properly, you gain a degree of conviction that is so strong that even if a thousand Buddhas were to appear and contradict you, you wouldn't believe them. And he said, when you have that degree of, con- of, of, of conviction, then you are free to follow the paths of sutra and tantra because you have grasped their essence. So, although this chapter on wisdom has this bad reputation, nevertheless, it is uh, essentially important and, uh, and very, very useful. Uh, okay, so when you, when you go through the uh, wisdom chapter, you find that it is divided into two, in, well, Kempo Kumpel anyway, following the uh, textual outline of Patra Rinpoche, he divides it into um, three main sections according to the ground, the path, and the fruit. The ground being the basic nature phenomena, the path uh, of coming to realize that nature, and then the fruit, namely the result of that path. Um, um, how should we do this? Obviously, we can't go through everything, but there are some things. Uh, there are at least one thing which I think is uh, important to uh, grasp. And I think actually a way into it is um, to use a kind of parable that uh, Zong Sakyan Rinpoche used when he was teaching uh, Chandra Kirti. He said, if, you, um, if you're standing next to the bed of somebody who's asleep and they're having a nightmare, you can see them uh, twisting and turning, tossing and turning, uh, you know, crying and groaning in their sleep. And you can see that they're having a nightmare. And uh, now supposing the person who is standing next to looking at the person who's sleeping is a Buddha. And the Buddha can actually see what the person is dreaming about. Right? So this person, uh, perhaps he's being uh, chased by a, serial killer or something. And he's in a, ter- a, te- a state of terrible panic and fear. Right? And for him, the serial killer is reality. The fear is reality. But the Buddha can see that there is no killer. There's nobody chasing him. It's a dream. So the Buddha has two possibilities. Either he can take a bucket of water and throw it on the sleeper and wake them up, and, uh, but supposing the sleeper is so deeply asleep that that doesn't work. So what the Buddha can do, being a Buddha, is that he can enter into the dream. He can go to the dreamer and then by gradual degrees suggest, you know, there's a, it's a dream, you're dreaming, there isn't a killer, there's nobody chasing you, right? Uh, Somebody who enters the dream, the Buddha who enters the dream, is what we call a nirmanakaya, the body of manifestation. Right? And it is uh, precisely the role of the nirmanakaya to suggest, by expounding the doctrine, that uh, you know, phenomena are not as real as they look. You don't have to take them at face value. Now, of course, to dream about a serial killer is quite a simple dream. 
Uh, but our dreams are much more long-lasting. Uh, we dream about being a certain person. Uh, we dream about being awake. We dream about being asleep. We dream about dreaming. We dream about being, having this life. We dream about dying. We dream about being reborn. So all the process of samsara is actually this long, protracted dream this is the, the basic message of uh, Madhyamaka. One of them, anyway. Um, all the arguments of Nagarjuna, all the arguments of Shantideva, are actually su- suggestions to the, to the dreamers, namely ourselves, that uh, what we are, are going through is a dream. So... Um, you know, you can really get used to that idea, I suppose, and it brings it will bring a kind of serenity. You know, you know, like when uh, I think the Karmapa said this, but also Dujam Rinpoche also said it. That he said that when you die, you don't go anywhere. What happens is that appearances change. It's just like uh, a pro- the programs changed, and. You know, if we could uh, if we could deal with our experiences in that way, then no matter what uh, life could throw at us, uh, would be manageable. I sometimes think, you know, uh, if I'm uh, like on the, I'm going on the plane going back to Europe, and we're over the Atlantic, and suddenly you know something happens and the plane is plunging towards the ocean, and like it happened to that Air France flight. And everybody on board is screaming with terror. You know, a person who has got to that place where uh, they understand that phenomena are empty and appearances can say, the program's changing, that's all. There's nothing to worry about. But it's because we don't do it that we really do worry. I mean, we, we worry because we don't, we don't see that. So... Uh, uh, I won't go on anymore. I, I mean, I prepared lots of stuff, but as as usual, too much stuff. But uh, so we've got fifteen minutes. Uh, so if you want to, to discuss this, I think I think basically, even if we haven't gone to the details of Chantideva's chapter, if you were to read the commentary of Kampo Kunpel, it would help you uh, under, to understand this. You know, the uh, the meaning of the of the wisdom chapter, and appreciate at the end that. Uh, it is enormously valuable uh, and well worth the effort. Uh, it, will, it will strengthen your uh, understanding of the Dharma. It will give you great confidence in, you know, in the face of life's experiences, both life and death. Um, and it will help you to understand all the different arguments that Shantideva has been giving you in the course of the book. Because everything he's been saying about equality, equalizing self and other, exchange of self and other, patience, how to deal with enemies, how to deal with, uh, remember, defiled emotions, not being in the object and the faculty, all these ideas are actually come from his Madhyamaka view. And, and the, the Madhyamaka view kind of underwrites them all and gives them the, the strength that they, you know, that will convince you of their truth. So thank you very much. So please, uh, uh, if you have anything to say or questions to ask. 
Well, Sin, I'd love if you just could say a little bit about your, your latest work on Mipar Rinpoche's commentary on this chapter. Sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so Mipar Rinpoche also wrote a commentary on this, on this chapter. Uh, and um, he wrote it at actually quite a young age. And what was happening was that he, were, he revived the uh, view of the old school, that's to say, the Nyingmapas, the Kagyupas, and the Sakyapas. I say old school because uh, Madhyamika in Tibet had a long and uh, checkered history. Um, and uh, it would be pleasant to say that it had always been serene and peaceful and kind, but it wasn't. Uh, there is, it's a story of um, a certain amount of intolerance, uh, disagreement, uh, academic hatred, political suppression. And so what happened was that uh, after the... Uh, uh, the a big turning point, one of the big turning points in the history of Madhyamaka in Tibet was Tsongkhapa. Who uh, completely who began uh, following the uh, this the traditional view, but changed his view uh, on the basis of uh, several visions of Manjusri that he is said to have had, and he sort of uh, 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 elaborated a whole theory of um, Madhyamika, which the other schools did not like, uh, and he was attacked in the generation following by various uh, great masters of the Sakya school. And um, so if, uh, that, uh, that was fine. But in the generations following, the followers of Tsongkhapa uh, decided that they would uh, suppress the, um, the books of the, the people who had attacked Tsongkhapa. And uh, they... They took the. Uh, what happened was that the after the uh, the Mongols established the fifth Dalai Lama as the supreme ruler of Tibet, the uh, the Ganden Podrang government uh, came into existence and uh, pursued a policy of suppression. This wasn't actually with necessarily with the agreement of the fifth Dalai Lama, but there were many kind of uh, political forces at work, and so the um, the writings of people like uh, Gorampa Sanamsenge or uh, Shakya Chokden, or um, the Eighth Karmapa, were sealed. They were, either the books were sealed and the blocks, uh, sorry, either the books were destroyed and the, the blocks were sealed. And uh, the various schools were penalized so that they withered. They, didn't, they couldn't maintain uh, their position uh, certainly not in competition with the vast uh, Galukpa establishments. Uh, now, this we have to be careful here because it sounds as if I'm criticizing the Galukpas, but I, I'm not really. Uh, you know, I'm not criticizing the, the doctrine of Tsongkhapa, and I'm not criticizing the uh, excellence of the uh, Galukpa scholars. Uh, but the problem is, as the Dalai Lama says, when religion and politics come together, it's a poisonous mixture. So uh, what happened was, going uh, several centuries later to the 19th century, you had a situation where the 
uh, older schools, the Nyingma schools, Kagyu and Shakyu school, schools, were uh, kind of demoralized and weakened. And they couldn't study their own texts. You know, there's a, an amazing story in the life of Deshun Rinpoche where he, uh, the, the Sakyapas, which was itself an, a very, uh, had, an in, had, a, had a very profound and elaborate scholastic uh, tradition of their own, were deprived of, the t- of their own traditional texts. They couldn't print them. The, the writings of Garampa were circulated in secret in manuscript copies. And it was very hard for uh, scholars to study. And so there's an amazing story of uh, Dejan Rinpoche who actually goes to Sakya, to the library of Sakya, to find that uh, the library is closed and it's guarded by some official. And so uh, he, get, he's, he manages to persuade him to let him into the library. And uh, the official shows him the volumes of Garampa's commentaries. And he says, you can hold them, but you can't open them. So he gathered the dust from the pictures and put it in an envelope and kept that. That was the best he could do. So this was a kind of uh, an awful situation. Um, and, but actually, in what happened in the 19th century was these great, these great masters appeared, like Jamyang Kinsi Wampo and Jamgung Kongtrul, Patrul Rinpoche, Lot Wangpo, and they set in motion what was called the Rime movement, the non-sectarian movement. And its purpose was precisely to counteract the negative effects of this political uh, situation. And of course, it was actually much easier where they lived because they were living in Cam, which is thousands of miles away from the political heartland of Tibet. So they had a certain amount of leeway. And so it was... Um, um, what they were, what they tried to do in the Rime movement was, to, above all, to find texts that were in uh, traditions that were in danger of disappearing, uh, to re-edit the texts, to collect them, to encourage people to practice them, to get the king of Dege to, you know, sponsor um, colleges uh, of study, monasteries, and so on. And gradually, these the three schools that had been so um, uh, had stagnated gradually came back to life um, <clears throat> and in the in the uh, in the process as uh, like Jamgun Control says you know if you once you know what these different traditions are saying you won't be sectarian because you will see that they are all talking about the same thing eventually and the great richness of the Tibetan tradition is all there because there are different approaches different traditions and it's a mistake to think that you should only have one tradition so uh, Mipam Rinpoche took part in this movement, and one of the things he did was to, uh, he was asked by Jamyang Kinsimwampo to um, compose uh, commentaries for the Nyingma Shedras, Nyingma colleges, based, reviving the uh, Nyingma view on various things. And he said... Until now, even the Nyingmapas, they don't even suspect that there is such a thing as a Nyingma tradition on the Sutra tradition. It's so, been so lost. He said it's become like a, the painting of a lamp. You know, it looks like a lamp, but it doesn't emit any light. So he said that, and, and, and uh, of course, there were Nyingma monasteries that, that continued to exist, had been founded. And um, because of the sort of political and scholastic hegemony 
if you, if you will, of the Gelugpa school, they used Gelugpa textbooks for sutra topics. They didn't really have much choice. And, you know, the Gelugpa texts were very good. Of course. You know, Mipam says that when, when he was studying as a, young, as, a, as a young man, well, insofar as he studied, he said he didn't study much, he said, when I was reading the Gelugpa texts, uh, I found them very easy to understand. They were very clear. Uh, as compared with the Nyingma text, which seemed to me to be much more difficult. And he said, but I didn't lose my faith in the tradition of the Vijadaras, of the, the Nyingma tradition, and for that reason, uh, I have un- come to understand something. And so later on in life, he set about writing these commentaries according to the Nyingma view, in particular, uh, the Nyingma uh, explanation of Mandyamaka, which is actually... Uh, quite interesting because um, it goes back through to Shantarakshita, who's the, you know, the founding abbot of um, Tibetan Buddhism itself. Um, anyway, he, he composed this commentary and uh, he didn't attack the Gelugpas. But he, said, he, he expressed the Nyingma view very clearly in contradistinction to what certain people say, you know, and, uh, and sort of put it right. In, uh, and actually, what he was saying, the Nyingma, as far as the general features are concerned, the Nyingma view, the Kagyu view, the Sakyu view are very similar. It is actually the, the uh, tradition that goes back through to the Indian texts, it's true that the Galupas rely on the translation of Indian texts, but their inspiration is not so much the Indian tradition, but the visions of Tsongkhapa. And so Garampa, in one of his critiques, he says, the Galupas have come up with all these ideas that weren't, that weren't known, they're completely novel, they were unknown in, the, in, in Tibet and unknown in India. It's a completely newfangled thing, which we don't go along with. So, uh, anyway, so Miparamimshi wrote this commentary. And as you read it, it doesn't seem particularly polemic. It isn't. But it created a storm of protest from the Galukpas. And so, uh, and the interesting thing is, that several Galukpa lamas uh, wrote uh, refutations of it. And, um, f- and with regard to two of them, uh, Miparamimshi wrote replies so, um, in this translation that we've just done, it, it's Mipa Mimpri's commentary and also one of his replies. Um, <coughs> so, he, well, he, was, he was attacked by somebody called Drakatulku, who was a, um, a Geshe from um, Gan, uh, Drepung. And um, this guy, who's only 23, he sort of uh, speaks with great disdain and, uh, you know, throw away contempt for this unknown camper. And uh, so he produces this critique. And also there's another later uh, lama from uh, Kumbum who wrote another refutation. And Mipa Rinpoche uh, replied. And actually in the case of the lama from Kumbum, they made friends. They became, they became close friends. Uh, and exchange many, many uh, letters. Uh, and the point that Mipam says, he says, nobody, uh, no, I, I am the last person to say that Tsongkhapa has 
um, brought enormous benefit to the Tibetan people, there's no question. And his texts that he has written are supremely learned and extremely clear. I have no critique uh, against him as a person. And he said, I have always, in any case, nourished the idea uh, that uh, even when uh, great masters say things in a slightly different way from our tradition, that they were speaking according to the needs of their disciples and as a, as a manifestation of their compassion. And therefore, no criticism of mine uh, will be forthcoming. But he said, what is bad is that when, for instance, I talk about the Numa view, they say this blow-down wretch is daring to have an opinion which is different from Tsongkhapa and is criticizing Tsongkhapa. And he says, this is not true. And he brings out, actually, so it's actually very interesting because he writes this, this uh, critique of the, in his reply to uh, Jakatuku. He writes a sort of critique of the Glugpa position, but he says, that's okay. We all have to have different people need, have different needs. What we have to avoid, and this is the essence of the Rime movement, is that you shouldn't scorn or have contempt for somebody who disagrees with you. If somebody disagrees with you, they're not automatically a fool or a scoundrel. He says, what we want is the space, respect, for everybody to express their opinion and to debate, even if they don't, if they don't have to agree. And, and when you think about it, that's very true, because if you look at, uh, if you look at um, what the Eighth Karmapa says, what Garampa says about Tsongkhapa's view, in their opinion, he's wrong on a number of important issues, dangerously wrong. And yet, look at the Dalai Lama. He's a Galukpa. He's, com he's completely learned in the Galukpa position. He, when he talks about Madhyamaka, you probably won't notice it, but he's actually expanding the Galukpa position. No one would doubt the holiness or the, uh, you know, the attainment of the Dalai Lama. And which makes you think, well, in the end, this kind of, this kind of uh, disagreement over these tiny details is not, doesn't make it that much difference, provided the person uh, you know, practice, practices sincerely. So uh, the interesting thing about the, the commentary of Mipan Rinpoche and also his reply, well, the reply in particular, because he, it's sort of um, the interest as far as Nyingma scholars are concerned is not that he's sort of uh, disproving Drakartuka, but actually he goes into much more detail about his own view, about the view of the new... So it's actually quite valuable. Um, is there anything else you want to know? <laughs> yes. It's, no, it's in, the, it's in the pipeline. It's coming in. Mm. Yeah. Ringu Tokur Rinpoche once commented about Majamaka that there's so much fear and trepidation about getting into it. It seems so scary. Mm. And he says uh, it's completely unnecessary to feel that way. He says, in fact, the best approach to Majamaka is to relax your mind. Yes, it's true. And, and uh, it occurred to me that uh, what little iota of Majamaka study I've done when you go into the karikas and you go through them, the only thing that's difficult is your tendency, one's tendency towards uh, complication. And mm -hmm. that once going through them, there's a, a wonderful sense of kind of release and, and groundlessness. It was, I was uh, 
re remembering your story about the paratrooper who jumped mm. out of the plane without his parachute and it reminded me of something that Trumper Rinpoche once said about Chunyata. He said, the bad news is that you've jumped out of the airplane and that your parachute does not open. The good news is that there's no ground. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah. I just wanted to comment that, mm. that there's some aspect, I think, of the fruition of Majjhimaka that one can adopt in going into it in a way that's more relaxed, mm. in the same way, for instance, that one takes the fruition of a compassionate Buddha as the inspiration to uh, engender bodhicitta on the mm. path. Yeah. Yes, sure. And Thank I'd you. love to hear your view on Gendon Chopil sometime, but maybe another time. Well, I don't know that much about Gendon Chopil, but uh, it's a very sad story. Um, I, it's, he was persecuted because actually he, he diverged from Tsongkhapa's position. And, uh, you know, that wasn't politically okay. And he was, uh, he was persecuted for it. Well, not only for that, but also his... his what they thought were his communist leanings. But, yeah. mm. And his lifestyle, perhaps. But uh, Yes, but, yeah. you know. But he, 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 he uh, diverged from Tsongkhapa, using Tsongkhapa to prove that Tsongkhapa had contradictions of his own. So that's the brilliance that I see in what yes. I him. Yeah. But then the, 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 his opponents uh, said, well, yes, but he, was, he, was, uh, he had this Nyingma sidekick who, uh, who, was, uh, and who actually was the one who wrote it. It wasn't really him, you know. He's, he's just expounding the Nyingma view, so he's infecting the uh, the pure Gelugpa view with Nyingma ideas. And, but yeah, yeah, it's a, one 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 thing. You know, to go back to what you said about groundlessness, uh, if there had been time, I would have liked to uh, talk about those two stanzas. That you know, at, at which point Shantideva started to levitate and disappeared. And actually, it's um, <clears throat> it's the point where he he actually is talking about what uh, Nagarjuna calls the chatuskati, the four extremes of existence, non-existence, both existence and non-existence, and neither existence nor non-existence. And in these four, he, he says that phenomena do not exist in any of these four. And uh, when you when you um, when you take a phenomenon and you analyze it and you establish its non-existence, the next thing you have to do is to establish its non-non-existence. And uh, when you do that, the mind enters into, uh, into, into a sort of condition which is completely free from mental elaboration. And so that at that point you see that the... Um, uh, the realization of the nature of a phenomena is actually the same thing as the realization of the nature of your own mind, that the two completely kind of fuse. Uh, and that's a very, um, that's something that the Galupas don't agree with, by the way, but this is, this is a, a very central point to uh, the older schools. We didn't go into the history of uh, Madhyamaka in India, which is very interesting, but that's maybe for another time. I think you wanted to ask a question, didn't you, about chapter five? No, but yesterday, didn't you say there was something you wanted to say? Um, well, I, I think uh, the question occurred to me in terms of sequence. 
um, which you hinted at, I suppose, to a certain degree of uh, the layout of the text uh, being akin to the Lam Rim sequence. Um, but I was thinking more of in terms of Shamatha Vipassana uh, and then, you know, developing the aspiration on the basis of Kunche Namche mm -hmm. instead of from ordinary mind. It makes mm -hmm. much more sense, you know. So I guess my question was to sort of instigate you into talking about the sequence of practices, um, especially given the context that we've talked about here. So, well, you'd have to ask the you'd have to ask a practitioner. <laughs> yes, I have all these practice <laughs> questions, and I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty for that I don't, here. I don't consider myself a teacher of the, you know practice or anything, but uh, I mean that's probably a question you could ask Judy. <laughs> I've, I've talked in, I've talked enough this morning. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be charitable by saying, within the context of Bodhicharvatara, just yes. what's sitting in front of us yes. in the text, is there anything there to suggest some in chapter sequence? five? Was it perhaps? Um, I guess when you take the text well, I mean, as a the, whole, the whole thing is a kind of progressive. Uh, progressive um, teaching on, you know, first of all, getting an interest in bodhicitta, protecting it and in, in increasing it, and as it were, exploring what it is. And he says, you know, the importance of shamatha and, uh, you know, renunciation in the generation of shamatha, but also, uh, you know, then the injection of the view, uh, which is vipassana, I know that vipassana has several meanings and uh, different um, and different levels of vipassana, but basically it's you know when you uh, you know when the mind is quietened, as Shantideva says, and later on when the, you know um, uh, you know when existence and non-existence are absent from before the mind, then there's no there's nothing for the mind to do but rest in perfect peace from concepts free. And that is Vipassana, from his point of view, I think. Uh, but it's based on... You couldn't hope to do that without having a kind of uh, uh, a quietened mind. And, you know, going back to the, the, the path of the yogis, um, that is, you know, if you look at six amnetic of uh, teachings, the calming down of the mind is, is an essential uh, preliminary before you actually then start to sort of study the mind and uh, the way thoughts arise and disappear and how they are empty in the moment of their arising and so on. <clears throat> Which is actually another way of talking about the what we talk about, the two truths, uh, that how they coincide in phenomena, that the relative truth is the way phenomena appear. The ultimate truth is the way they are, that is to say, empty of real existence. And how... And Mipam brings this out, Mipam Rimshi brings this out very clearly, where he says that for ordinary beings, we've spent uh, lives, all our time from, be, you know, from beginningless time, we have been engrossed in relative bodhicitta. There's the relative uh, truth, the appearance of things. There's been no even chink of a possibility of seeing beyond that. That doesn't mean to say that phenomena all that time have not been empty. But the two truths have been separated. Emptiness on one side, which is totally unknown, and then the appearance, 
But gradually, through the teachings and through the realization, the two truths actually coalesce. You see that they are actually, you know, they come together in phenomena. And that's actually quite an important point because when you come across Madhyamaka and you hear people talking about it, you think it's some sort of weird kind of mysticism or some revelation of some uh, mysterious doctrine that nobody can understand. And in fact, what Madhya Nagarjun is talking about is just the things of everyday life. It's, you know, that once you understand the nature of phenomena, you are no longer their slave. They lose their power over you. Like the yogi in the plane who's not phased by the fact that the plane's going down. You know, I guess. I really like that one because I'm sitting there on planes often reading... MMK, and <laughs> thinking, oh, if I've really got this, and then all of a sudden turbulence, and it's all over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be quite scary, I agree. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we'll be meeting again this afternoon, I think. Do you want to finish now, or to go on? I mean, if there anybody, if, if you have any else, anything else to say. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.